The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, so we had the CPI print today. Pretty much, I think, what most people were looking for, certainly consensus, um, certainly gives some more credence to the argument that the Fed can pause if it wants to. Uh, let's check in with somebody who pays close attention to this stuff. Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. So, uh, Ira, what's your takeaway from the uh, inflation print we saw today? Yeah, obviously, you've, you know, you guys have talked about it ad, ad nauseum here a little bit. It's pretty much as expected. Um, uh, not, it doesn't really leave a, a whole lot of doubt as to what's going to happen tomorrow. I think that the, uh, the you know, if, if we had seen something where you get a 0.5 or a 0.6 print on, uh, on, on the core numbers, then maybe the Fed would, would hike tomorrow, but they've signaled that they're probably going to skip tomorrow's meeting. I, I think the bigger, the, the bigger thing that, that today's data uh, does for us is really leaves in doubt what then is going to happen in July. So, the, you know, the market was pricing for a near certainty that they were going to skip June and then hike in July. But now, um, you know, I think that we have to reassess that, uh, that the, the certainty that the Fed is going to go in, uh, in July and the market started to kind of move away at least a little bit from that possibility at this point. So Ira, talk to us about when we're looking at the speculation that's happening in the bond market and how it's at a record when you are looking at treasury futures ahead of the Fed meeting. Break it down as far as what is happening with the positioning there. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, so so there's record short positioning by speculators in uh, in in the treasury market. Basically, everyone short duration. So the so the fact that you actually have a little bit of a sell off going on right here right now is is a little bit surprising. But typically, what happens is that you know this positioning data doesn't necessarily give you a lot of information about what direction the market's going to go. Um, you know, the the fact that people are very short just means in in particular that as the market sells off, that you could see some short covering, and that it just gets harder and harder for moves in, in the direction that the, the futures positioning is. Um, but we have to keep in mind, too, that that these um, some of this positioning, in a way, could be a hedge to another risk that uh, some of these uh, levered investors that, that are primarily short uh, have on. So, for example, if they're long corporate bonds, for example, they could be short some treasuries as a, and, and treasury futures as, as kind of a, a hedge to that, or it could be that they're short equities, uh, or long equities, rather, and, and you know, short rates as well. Um, you know that that's possible too. So, so it's a little bit hard to discern with this futures positioning exactly what what's going on with the uh, overall strength of the market. But I do think that it means that it's going to get harder and harder to to for the market to sell off on as dramatically as it has. Um, and you could wind up seeing on a rally, you could wind up seeing massive rallies because a lot of these shorts could get covered very quickly. Shorting U.S. Treasuries, isn't that kind of un-American? How often does that happen, Ira? I mean, look at, who, who does that? There's been, been a lot of people short treasuries, uh, you know, for, for the better part of, of, you know, two years now. Really? You know, just, 
and uh, you know part of part of the reason is that when interest rates are going up you don't want to be long right yep, and, yep. and you know there's there's ways to to make money and if you look at that even though um, you know the, the the Bloomberg Treasury index has been had record losses over the last 18 months um, even worse than the 1970s and 80s even though uh, interest rates have went up way more back then right back during the uh, you know 1978 to 1981 you actually had interest rates go up 10 percent right and we've only seen interest rates go up you know four and a half five percent now um, this year but but there's some bond math involved because um, the relationship between the price of a bond and the yield and yield moves is much much higher now so you get a little move in in uh, in the, the a yield of a bond and um, it's more in dollar price today than it was back in the 19 uh, 1970s and 80s um, so, so even though we've had these massive losses, um, a lot of people have outperformed. So when you look at active managers in uh, in bond funds, uh, both bond mutual funds and actively managed ETFs, you actually see significant outperformance compared to indices. Um, even though you now have some people, you know, still moving to passive within the ETF world, um, the uh, active managers have have done very well by being short treasuries or mm-hmm. underweight treasury securities and in their portfolios. Hey, Ira, I've had some traders talk to me about how whenever they're shorting treasuries, especially if you're looking at the 10-year, it was more on the expectations that yields would move higher. But then the caveat being such extreme positioning may have the counter effect and then end up having to push yields lower. Do you think that's plausible? Well, I, I think it has more to do with the volatility and, and the directionality of the market. So, like I mentioned, if if people weren't as short as they are now with, with things like treasury futures, we might have seen even uh, even a bigger sell-off today than than we've seen so far. You know, ten-year yields, um, you know, higher by five-ish basis points uh, on the day. But uh, I think it's when you go the other way and you get that short covering that you wind up really seeing like position squaring and uh, and and you know uh, what would be you'd think would be a Five basis point move can turn into a ten or twelve basis point move in a hurry, um, and we've seen quite a lot of that over the over the, the last couple of years, um, where you get this these extreme positioning and then you get this massive snapbacks as uh, as the market kind of recalibrates their their thinking, um, and and you know again like if if you know I think a big part of the reason why you see some of the short base in, in things like duration is I do suspect that there's a lot of people who are in interest rate steepeners now. People weren't flattening trades for a very long time where they were long, say, 10 years or 30 years securities, and then they were short twos and fives. I think I think that's starting to flip as we get toward the end of the Fed's hiking cycle, because the next move, and I do concur with this, the next move is likely to be a very significant steepening of the yield curve, or, or uninversion of the yield curve at least. Um, so you wind up with an environment where um, people are, are going to be buying two-year, three-year, five-year notes, and then want to be short or uh, or underweight 10-year and 30-year uh, securities. Ira, what would surprise you tomorrow from Fed Chairman Jay Powell in his comments? I think if he's, I think if he's extremely hawkish, would would surprise me. Um, you know, given some of the some of the data that we've received, yes, the employment data was was pretty solid, but a lot of the other uh, data that we've seen, everywhere from some sales data as well as um, some of the ISM surveys and and the leading economic indicators, have all been pretty poor and actually are very close to recessionary type levels. So, um, so so I think if he was very hawkish tomorrow, that would be uh, a surprise. Certainly, if he was more hawkish than he was last month. So I'm looking 
looking very closely at our at at, at our uh, Fed sentiment indicator. So after he uh, after Jay Powell gives his opening remarks from the press conference, um, you know we, we're going to run our our natural language processing model <laughs> yeah. and yeah, you know take a look. It's known at, as your your, that your juniors. <laughs> Well, our, our data science team. Will yeah, do. I know. Much, we've got one of those in BI. How much fun was it to see Ira last week in the suspenders with the yeah. soccer all yeah. over I mean, it? It was he, great. He comes, he comes out of his cave every <laughs> once in a while, so we, we appreciate that. Ira Jersey, thanks so much. Ira, he covers uh, all the interest rate strategy work for Bloomberg Intelligence. i got a whole team uh, doing that kind of stuff, and they've got some serious models. Um, he's got a model that kind of covers on a day-to-day -day basis the receipts and the spending of the U.S. government. Amazing. Like, I don't even have that for myself. He's got it for, <laughs> for the, the entire U.S. government. US government. <laughs> um, so we know when, when and if the U.S. can afford to pay their bills. So we'll keep an eye on that. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Just met Paul Sweeney here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Boy, attention's going to be this afternoon down in Miami, Florida, where President Trump will be arraigned. Yeah, we want to get uh, kind of a roundtable this discussion here and kind of catch it from a couple different angles. So we welcome Wendy Schiller, Brown University professor. Uh, she joins us here, as does uh, Kaylee Lines. Uh, she joins us. She is in Miami at the courthouse. She, of course, she covers uh, the White House for Bloomberg Television. Uh, we appreciate her time on a busy, busy day. Wendy, let's start with you. I mean, it doesn't happen every day that a former president gets uh, arraigned on federal charges here. What do you expect this to mean for President Trump and potentially uh, another run for the presidency? Well, good morning. In the short term, it's it's good for Donald Trump with his base and uh, donations. They expect they're holding a fundraiser, I believe, even this evening, and they uh, expect to raise a lot of money off this. Uh, and really continue to keep his name in the news. I mean, there is no publicity that Donald Trump doesn't like. Uh, and so I think in the short run, you know, he'll benefit in some way from this. But in the longer run, it's just another or an additional liability to his candidacy, uh, particularly for the broader Republican Party. And I don't see where it does him any favors with the key independent voters he'd need to win the general. But even in state primaries across the country, you can register and change your party registration from independent to Republican. So if independents wanted to shape the Republican nomination process, they can do that. Uh, and they haven't been big fans of the president and recent, the former president in recent elections. So that's the liability, I think, that's sort of deep and persistent for Donald Trump's longer term prospects. Kaylee, I want to bring you into this conversation. Set the scene for us. What are things shaping up heading into this afternoon? Well, I'm at the, outside the courthouse right now, and there are dozens and dozens of media tents like the one I am in. Bloomberg, there is a very high police presence, but there isn't yet at this point, it seems to be a lot of protesters, but they are prepared for potentially a lot to be here over the course of today. The Miami police chief has said it could be anywhere between 5,000 and 50,000 supporters of uh, President Trump who show out today as he had called on them 
to do. He, of course, had posted on True Social over the weekend. I'll see you in Miami on Tuesday. Uh, he had in an interview with Roger Stone on radio over the weekend as well, said that people need to come out and peacefully protest. So we'll be on watch for that. And, of course, it's at 3 p.m. Eastern time, so about four and a half hours from now, I think, if my math is right, that the president <laughs> will be uh, showing up here, although we may not see him. He may enter underground uh, to be arraigned on these federal charges. What, Wendy, what do, you, what do you make of some of the, I guess, responses we've had from members of Congress? Some have come out in supporting the president uh, pretty uh, wholeheartedly, and some have not supported him. Some have been, like uh, Senator Romney, been critical here. How do you expect this to, to play out? Well, they're sort of dancing around it, right? They they want they can't alienate the Trump base either. Whether you're currently holding office and running for president, or you're just currently holding office uh, and trying to get reelected. If you're a House member in particular in 24, you're dancing around it. On the other hand, um, they, you see that they're sort of trying not to talk about the severity of the, the classification level of the documents that were badly handled. Um, so these are really highly sensitive national security documents, and it gets to the point of: Do you want this man in charge of our national? security. And that is a legitimate point and question to ask. People will get confused about the number of indictments and the, the you know, scope of authority. But at the end of the day, you've got, you know, military plans and nuclear secrets lying around a ballroom. You know, that does not say I'm going to be responsible with national security. And the Republicans want to keep the edge that they think they have on national security. So there does come a point, except for maybe through Jim Jordan of Ohio, where you say, I can't really defend compromising our national security uh, for my own election prospects. Kaylee, how has the Biden administration responded so far? Well, they really haven't at all. The president has really tried to keep him his distance from this. When he's been asked about that, he has said uh, no comment on the indictment because, of course, one of the narratives that uh, President, former President Trump, as well as Republicans, have been pushing is that this is politically motivated, that this is a weaponization of the Justice Department. Uh, President Trump has said that this is a corrupt Biden administration election interference at the highest level. So to this point, President Biden has tried to stay far away from this, let the Justice Department do its work uh, and not really try to be involved in this in any way. Kaylee, uh, down in, in Miami, is there an ex- expectation that the president will be public here? Will there be a public, I'm not going to say a perp walk, but will there be some public appearance by the president today as part of this process, do we know? Uh, It it really could go either way. The expectation, though, is that he will not be walking through the usual lobby of this courthouse, that he's going to enter via an underground uh, garage and then head into the courthouse. So we may not actually see him here physically. Where we will see the president is after he finishes these proceedings in Miami today, he's going to get back on his private plane, fly from Miami back up to Bedminster, New Jersey, and speak at his golf club there this evening at 8.15 p.m. Eastern time and hold a donor event. As Wendy talked about, his campaign is hoping they'll raise $2 million uh, at that event tonight, just hours after he made history by being arraigned on federal criminal charges. This is something we have never seen happen before, but it could have the same effect as the indictment previously in Manhattan earlier this year, that what it really accomplishes is galvanizing his base and ultimately uh, being a way for him to fundraise. Wendy, what's the timetable here that we're talking about when it comes to a potential indictment, obviously like this, as far as how long this could drag out for? Well, that's a great question, Jess, because it, it gets to the, the judge, 
right? This is the judge that appointed a special master, you know, to sort of go over what the Justice Department had done in terms of the raid for the documents. You know, this judge got chastised for the way she handled this case before by her, you know, sort of higher level judges on the panel. The question is, you know, does she go by the book here or does she compromise the case in some way? Uh, and does she have to be removed from the case? I mean, there's still a question mark about whether she actually ends up being the presiding judge. You know, you've got setting trial dates, you've got jury selection, you, you know, these trials, and I mean multiple trials for, for the former president, will go, will move on. And, you know, I, they'll take a long time. They'll drag out, which was good, good for Trump in terms of his ability, as Kelly's, you know, absolutely rightly suggesting. But there's a weariness, particularly among core voters. And as I said, mechanically, in the, in the primaries next year, you can have a lot of people who aren't core Trump supporters actually sign up to vote in the Republican primary, since Biden, if he's the nominee, you know, as he stays healthy and all that stuff that we talk about, um, there's not going to be much of a contest on the Democratic side. So you're going to see some shifting of voters in that primary, and this, I think this will become a liability, particularly if he gets a lot of really rowdy-slash-violent people to protest this. That just reminds people of January 6th, and I don't think that does anybody good on the Republican side. Wendy, if I'm running for the Republican nomination, how do I play this thing that, that Trump has been indicted on a federal, of federal crimes? Um, you know, you you play it by basically trying, and especially in digital advertising on social media platforms, to saying, "Look, I support everything this guy, you know, did. Um, I'm I'm loyal, but he's not the guy anymore. It's too chaotic. It's too disruptive. You can't trust him with national security. Try to get that one in, and just really, if they can get the kind of big money, you know, blanket the Republican Party base in the next couple of months, saying, "I am really the better alternative," and try to sort of erode that 34, 35% base that we think he has in the Republican primary voting electorate and steal 9 to 15% of that voting populace uh, elsewhere. And I think that needs to be the strategy. It's a slow and steady, but it needs to happen now. And uh, it needs to say, you know, I'm the better alternative. You can still like this guy, but vote for me if you really want to win in 2024. Hey, Kaylee, we only have about a minute left. How does this impact other potential cases that Trump is having to deal with as well? Well, that's a really good question, because, of course, this isn't the first time that he has been arraigned or faced criminal charges that already happened in New York. But this also may not be the only indictment we see stemming from investigations by special counsel Jack Smith. He is also investigating uh, Trump's role in January 6th. There's a district attorney in Fulton County, Georgia, that is also looking at his attempts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. So this doesn't necessarily mean the end of Trump's uh, legal woes and potentially related to January 6th. We could actually see even more serious charges than the one he's facing here. And I have to apologize if you hear this rooster, guys. I know you've been talking about <laughs> chickens. There are literally wild chickens and roosters walking around the courthouse right now. <laughs> All right. We'll leave that to you. You're in charge of that down there. Bloomberg TV anchor Kaylee Lines definitely on location down in Miami with the chickens and the hens. Uh, and Wendy Schiller, Brown University uh, professor, uh, joining us to get some just some smart analysis of you know how this is all going to play out uh, down in Miami today and what it might mean for uh, President, uh, former President Trump going forward, particularly as we prepare for uh, the 2024 election. A lot of moving pieces there. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Jess Minn and here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. All right, inflation day today, CPI day today. Here's a kind of the headline stuff uh, on an annualized basis. CPI 
the headline print, 4%. Uh, and that's kind of right in line with the 4.1% expectation, but it's down big from last month when it was 4.9%. So that's JT the good was talking stuff. about those egg prices. Earlier. I know. The index for eggs falling close to 14%, the largest decrease in that index since January 1951 of that CPI report. Yeah, I'm a big eggs Benedict guy, so that's, that's oh, great. Apparently they go. have chickens outside the courthouse. <laughs> chickens outside the courthouse. That's right. With Kaylee Lines. She's in charge. Um, all right, let's, so they seem pretty good to me, but let's go to somebody who does this stuff for a living, Jeffrey Cleveland. He's a director and chief economist that paid in in Regal. So, Jeff, uh, you know, the print seemed good to me. What's your takeaway from our inflation outlook here in the United States? Well, I'm self-interested. So when I look at the index for food away from home, it's up 8.3% in the last 12 months. Okay. So that's, uh, you know, dining out. That's It's too much for me. Food at home is up 6% year on year. And I think if I remember correctly, I, I flipped through the report for the L.A. area. So the L.A. metro area uh, headline CPI was up 0.7% month to month. So I'm not seeing this slowdown in prices that everyone is so cheerful well, about. Well, your problem month. out there, Jeff, is gasoline prices. What are you guys doing out there? I mean, it's, uh, is it all your taxes? And stuff? Also, used vehicle prices picked up in the May data. That's correct, too. Yeah, I, I think dr people drive too much here, Paul. That's that's the problem in Los Angeles. It's a, that's a driving culture. Uh, taxes and regulations don't help. Uh, that's the short version of the story. All right. Um, so what does this all mean for the Fed? They're in lockdown mode down in, in D.C. today and tomorrow. We'll hear from the Fed Chairman Jay Powell tomorrow afternoon. How do you think he and, the, you know, the Fed board in general, how are they going to view some of this data? Well, I think they've communicated pretty clearly that they would like to pause, so um, or at least maybe skip this meeting. So I think that's uh, the plan here. Does this report give them cover to do so? Uh, yes, you know, the headline inflation was softer, coming in at point one, lowest year-on-year -year reading in a few years, so that that's fine. I, I think, though, uh, when I look at the guts of the report, um, all jokes aside about, about food away from home here, uh, look at that core CPI number. It has been 0.4 or 0.5 month to month for, uh, by my count, six, I think six consecutive months now. So to me, that's important because that, that's giving you a sense of the underlying trend uh, when, you, when you filter through a lot of the noise. And um, that, that shows no signs of really, really slowing down. I think if you're a policymaker, your hope is that rents um, and, the alt and the shelter component slows further as the year progresses. But at this point, I think that's more hope than, than anything. So. I, I would, yeah, maybe they skip, but they're, they're still, there's going to be some discomfort here, I think, um, if we keep getting 0.4% core CPI readings through the summer. When we look in the WERP function in the terminal world, interest rate probability still, to your point, Jeffrey, when you're thinking about that July meeting, a potential skip maybe tomorrow, but still 60% odds there that there will be a hike next month. What do you think we need to see happen in the data in particular between now and then for there to maybe continue this pause or maybe on the flip side of that, if the data comes in still a little bit more persistently, stubbornly high on the inflation front to where they might have to continue with these rate increases yeah we think they will you know so they'll skip then in july they could hike and it's possible i wouldn't rule it out that they hike even another time later this year and it it goes down to the i would say inertia in the the core inflation data uh, you you need a much bigger slowdown in my view 0.4 percent month to month is not going to cut it so you you need something like 0.1 or even flat readings um which tend to be pretty rare Historically, I think that's the key uh, takeaway. Um, so I, I don't really see scope for that. In fact, we may see 
rent slow down. I think there's a lot of uh, forecaster expectation of that, given some, what we've seen in house prices and given what we've seen in maybe some private sector rent metrics. Uh, so the investor, or investors and forecasters are already expecting that. We could see some offset, though. Other categories which have been weak um, all year could could uh, surprise to the upside later this year. So one that I would point out is uh, medical care services. Medical care services have been negative. So they've been a drag on inflation since last fall. I think a lot of that has to do with how the CPI is uh, calculating the um, health insurance figures. So we've been pretty negative, dragging down overall inflation. That could change as we get into the fall, and then it could be a, a positive. So you all in all, you might get a slowdown in rents, but that could be offset by a pickup in medical care services. And then your overall core inflation won't slow um, that much at all. And that, that's going to be problematic for the Fed in the second half. Jeffrey, have to get your take on the recession debate. If you look at the ECFC function in the terminal where you can see these projections for economists pulled by Bloomberg, if you look annually, you aren't seeing that contraction there in growth. But if you look quarter over quarter, it continues to get pushed out. Now it's just slightly about like five tenths of percent contraction in the third quarter, a little bit around the same ballpark in the fourth quarter. But it seems like investors or even economists in particular still keep being pushing back those recession expectations. What's your call there? Yeah, I think you have to push out your recession expectations again. Uh, we've been joking, this is the most forecasted recession ever. Uh, everyone says it's imminent. And then another month of data goes by and we see that it's not. I, I think, you know, to be fair to my bearish uh, colleagues, if you look at leading indicators, if you look at the yield curve, if you look at how much the Fed has tightened in the last uh, 15 months or so, I think it is, it, is, um, it is correct, you know, or it is good to be prudent, to be cautious. However, for us, Simple, simple way to look at it. Look at the jobs report. Look at uh, the spending power that the consumer has. When you think about how many people are employed and how much they're earning, um, in aggregate, that's growing around 7% year on year through the latest set of data um, it, you know, from the jobs report that we got uh, a week or so ago. So right there, that tells you the consumer still has spending power. Uh, that's really key for us. So that means the recession is not imminent. I think if you want to push it out in your forecast, maybe sometime in the middle of next year uh, would be a better. Uh, it doesn't seem like it's going to be a Q3 or a Q4 occurrence in, in our view. Hey, Jeff, we know you hang out with the Hollywood crowd. What's going on <laughs> with the writer's strike out there? What's the status? Uh, you know, I don't hang out with the Hollywood crowd. <laughs> I appreciate you trying to loop me in with the cool kids, but I, I don't get those invites. Uh, somehow they don't want to hang out and talk about CPI. So that is uh, that's a real that's issue for my... that's a real issue for that area out there. Yeah, in the past it has been. Uh, you know, I would say in California in general, we're already feeling. I would say a bigger slowdown. If you look at the the unemployment rate in California, yep. it's already up half a percentage or more. Uh, since the lows. So and so part of that could be due to Hollywood. I think the bigger story, Paul, right now is is tech. Yep. Uh, we definitely felt the the you know the very near effects of the the layoffs that you've seen in tech, uh, especially in Q1. So I yep. think that is a bigger factor than the than the Hollywood writer strike at this point for me. All right. All right. Well until we start missing our fall shows and then we're all gonna be <laughs> worried about it. Jeffrey Cleveland director and chief economist at Payton Rigo. Uh, he is based in Los Angeles with getting some uh, LA color from him when we can. Definitely, and yeah. also bring in the sunshine. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at- The countdown has begun. 
This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Chris Whalen, he's a founder of Whalen Global Advisors. Hey, Chris, we got the CPI print today. Kind of how does that inform, I don't know, your view of what we'll hear from the Fed tomorrow? How does that inform kind of your view of markets? Any, any change there? Well, I think it's given, you know, the manager class reasons to go out and buy stocks. Uh, my banks are running very well, all green, other than Deutsche Bank. We want to pay attention to them. Um, <laughs> so the managers want to buy it. They will. Um, you know, people don't realize that the lesson of the first quarter was that banks are not really stocks. They're actually heavily levered credit trades. But it doesn't matter. They want to own them, and they will. I mean, SoFi is the best performer. Uh, last year, followed by UBS and Discover. There you are. Chris, what are you buying? What are you selling? Well, I, I did buy a little bit of uh, New York Community Bank. We've talked about that because I know the guys at Flagstar very well. I'm a mortgage guy. Uh, we're going to wait on that one, though, because obviously rates aren't going to fall for a while, and that's a bull market housing trade. Uh, even though you think of it as a New York regional bank, it's now a national mortgage bank. Uh, so you're going to have to, it, it's funny, they actually use the flag store name outside of New York because you can't say New York Community Bank in California. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Wouldn't work. But, you know, it's now a hundred plus billion dollar mortgage specialist. And meanwhile, Comerica is tiptoeing out of the mortgage space this morning. Very interesting uh, report I saw. So I guess what I would tell you is the inflation numbers are making people feel better, but they want to feel better. You know, the bias of the entire audience in finance in the United States is long. Yep. That's how we get paid. So, you know. Chris, I mean, I mean, is it time for me to go out and buy some quality regional banks? I don't know, an M&T bank, something like that. I mean, I felt like so many banks were thrown out kind of with the bathwater over the last yes. uh, four or five, six weeks. Is it okay to go out there and buy them, or do we still have some real concerns out there about the sector? Well, there are real fundamental concerns about the sector. Everyone knows this. Uh, the Fed took the pistol out of our mouths by putting the funding <laughs> facility out there. That bought us some time. But it doesn't change the negative cash flow. I, I wrote about this in the blog yesterday. The amount of paper that people are sitting on that they're losing money on every day is growing. You know, Bill Nelson at Bank Policy Institute writes great stuff on the Fed. And he talked about the fact that they're losing a billion dollars a day at the Fed because of the difference between what they earn and what they're paying out. Same thing with the banks. So depending on who it is and depending on your willingness to sit with it all year until the real fundamentals for banks improve, uh, that's really the question you got to ask. Are they cheap? Yes. U.S. Bank at one time's book? My God. But I just made a decision in 20 to move up the capital structure into preferreds until I had a little more visibility on banks because the Fed took so much earning power away from banks during QE. 
and they're now trying to readjust their cost structure and what they earn on their assets for the future. But that means a year from now. So Chris, if you buy banks, you've got to be patient. How important are management teams when I'm looking at a bank stock? Oh, very crucial. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do they understand duration, number one, and do they understand credit? Because if you look at Silicon Valley Bank, these guys basically shot themselves in the head. They kept buying more mortgage backs and then half the book prepaid, they bought more. And by 21, the end of 21, that bank was dead. They just didn't know it yet. <laughs> so, you know, credit is the second thing. We're going into maybe a recession. I don't know, guys, are we having a recession? I think this economy is going to ignore the Fed. What do we do then? What do we do if we just continue to chug along the way we are? No recession. Um, think about what the Fed has done. They have increased the cost of credit for the front end of the economy, the productive part, but the long end? Nah. Are we going to die because mortgage rates are at 7%? No. We're going to do business. So I, I think the private sector is incredibly strong in this country. And maybe those rate cuts during COVID were unnecessary. Mm. Chris, coming out just a few months after a lot of those concerns about some of those regional bank stresses in March, what mm. are deposit flows telling us at this point? Well, they kind of came back by the end of the quarter. In other words, the outflows slowed down. This was partly because Treasury wasn't selling any paper. And the delay with the debt ceiling now forces them to go out and basically refund about a trillion dollars. And there are outflows constantly during this period. So they'll end up with six, seven hundred billion sitting in the TGA. But unfortunately, every dollar they raise means that a bank deposit's gonna disappear because Treasury's in deficit. Every time a, a bond on the books of the Fed matures, Treasury has to refinance that bond immediately. So that's why banks are under so much pressure. Now, we're hoping that the difference between the reverses that the Fed has been maintaining for money market funds to help them are going to run off. We're hoping that that problem is going to leave and the Fed is going to be able to simplify policy going forward by not having to support banks and the GSEs and the money market funds with reverse repurchase agreements. That would simplify life a little bit for Chairman Powell. But other than that, I think they got to run off the balance sheet. My hope is they're going to pause and start selling more bonds. Uh, what I would do if I were Powell is I would tell the Fed of New York, make sure you hit the cap every month for the runoff of the mortgage-backed securities. So if the natural runoff is half of the cap, that means they got to sell some bonds. You're it's talking, not that hard. When you're talking about money market funds specifically, because so much money has been plowed into those, at what point oh, are we yeah. going to see even more of that money go toward equities? Well, that's the thing. It was it was rising over the last couple of months. It's over $2 trillion now. If, that, if half of that money went back into equities, it would be a tremendous boon to the market. But I think more likely it's just going to go into T-bills because these are not risky funds. These are money market so funds. Is it because of and yields, think, just being able to yes. yield more than 5%? Sure, sure. If you're going to pick up 30 bips by going out of money market funds and the T-bills, you're going to do it. Absolutely. I just took a big pile off the table on NVIDIA. I had gone in in 2021. I was staring at a 150% gain. I had to take it. I put it in T-bills. You know? <laughs> exactly. So, I... and, and remember, if you sell a money market fund, and buy a T-bill, a deposit disappears. It's a fiduciary deposit, but it still disappears. So the system 
is going to be running off cash banking system as the Fed balance sheet shrinks. How far can we go? Yep. That's the real that's the big question. All right, Chris. Chris, always good stuff. We love we appreciate getting a few minutes of your time. Chris Whalen, he's the chairman of Whalen Global Advisors and just one of the top, I think, bank analysts out there that we like talking to. And it was just great, you know, over the last a couple, three months when we're having those uh, real big stories about some of those regional banks. He was just critical for us kind of getting a handle on that. So uh, good touching base uh, with Chris Whalen of Whalen Global Advisors. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Jess Menden, Paul Sweeney here in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. I want to get right to our next guest because I'm going to talk about markets and, and, and where to go here because there's a lot of economic data flying out, flying around out week. there. It's a big week. I want to know what the, the pros are doing and what they're telling their clients. Tim Pagliara joins us. He's the CIO of Cap Wealth uh, based down in Tennessee, our good friends down in Tennessee. Tim, thanks so much for joining us here. You're in, where in Tennessee are you, Franklin? Franklin, Tennessee. So All right, you have to answer one question for me. I'm <laughs> dying to know this about Nashville. Why has Nashville become the bachelorette party capital of the world? Hey, what about Austin? Austin's a lot of fun. I right? think, I don't know. People tell me Nashville <laughs> is you know where what? the young Nashville's ladies are going. Time. Yeah, it's where because the kids go. I think because they facilitate it, they'll, they'll let them do just about anything. <laughs> and... All right, I, I just, I went down there on a, on a business trip and they were all over the place. You're not wrong. Yeah, you it used to be Vegas, but now it's what happens in Nashville. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good to know. And Franklin is just outside of Nashville, so hopefully safely outside there. So, Tim, um, you know, we've had a nice run in this market, but I want to get your thoughts on, if I look at SPX, I see a nice story up, you know, 11%, 12%. If I look at SPW, the equal weighted, it's kind of flat. So I got the Magnificent Seven stocks kind of ruling the day here. Is that a concern for you? Very much so. I mean, it's frothy, and, and it, it is a sign that, um, you know, it, it can't continue, you know, because we were pushing valuations before, and these seven stocks are accounting for about 95 96% of their turn in the index. I got to ask, though, because looking month to date, you're starting to see some of these other sectors beginning to pick up, whether you're looking at industrials, energy, financials. Uh, also, small caps ought to tear up more than 8% this month. What do you need to see happen to give you more conviction that this is broadening out? I think guidance from the Fed um, about what they're going to do and how much time they're going to allow us to get to that uh, 2% inflation target. You know, Bloomberg had a good survey that was out this week. Um, and 54% of the respondents felt like it was going to take a little over two years to get to that 2% inflation target. About 11% of the respondents felt like it would take five years. So it's just a question of how much patience the Fed is going to have and how concerned they are that they may break something if they push too hard. And there's a lot of signs of stress in the system right now. So given that backdrop, how are you positioning? Very, very defensively. Um, really? And, and, even, yeah. even after eight, eight months since the low in October in you, the s You just have to be, you have to be disciplined um, in this. And the first time in, 
I think it's 12, 14 years, we've got a 15% position in, in treasuries. Um, the Fed, you know, they've got problems that they have to fix. And even this past week where you saw the park turn the keys back over to their properties in Union Square um, and walk away from, you know, two magnificent hotel properties, yep. that has a ripple effect through the system. It's not just that property and it's not just San Francisco. And so those are the things that you have to watch and, and be concerned about and the contagion, what it could cause for the rest of, of the markets. You know, we're just looking at uh, Abigail Doolittle, who covers the markets for Bloomberg. Uh, she mentioned earlier today that, you know, this market's starting to broaden out a little bit in the last uh, couple of weeks. And she pointed out to like the Russell 2000 up 1.15% today, outperforming the S&P 500. Is small mid cap a place where you think people should be looking to the extent that maybe they they miss some of that big cap rally? Absolutely. I mean, we take an all cap approach, and I think you can find some some great values, um, you know, in in that sector right now. But it is an individual stock market, um, and so people that own individual securities and that are not you know, dependent on the indexes for their returns, they're the they're going to be the beneficiaries of all this. What are your top stock picks? You know, and very broadly, we still like Berkshire Hathaway because of the cash position. You know, that's have. actually getting close. Class B shares close to a record, and obviously they have right? a very hefty stake in Apple, as we know. Right, um, but but you know, so I, I would be uh, I I like Berkshire, I like um, CVS. We like a, um, a a company that I really can't mention it because it's below five dollars and they're in transition, <laughs> um, but they're in the um, they're in the technology um, uh, space yep. in, in providing um, internet high speed fiber. Um, so I think you just have to look at those companies that have been hit really hard because of. Maybe their balance sheet and was overreacting, you know, to that. As we believe it's important to have strong balance sheets and not have to depend on the capital markets, but you can also take that a little too far. And so those are some of the companies we're looking at. Regional banks, um, there are some that, you know, that have come up on the radar. Oh, which which regionals do you like? Well, I'm in an acquisition period on some of them, so I can't okay. really, I can't say. Um, but but that's in a general way. That's what I would. Um, that's what I would look at. So you were buying the dip then uh, on those banks that potential ones that obviously were seeing their stock prices fall the last couple of months. We're shuffling the deck. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I like to compare <laughs> it to, um, you know, being the general manager of a, of a football team, and, and we're trying to improve the team that we've got on the on the field. So that might be peeling off some apple and buying something else that we like mm. um, in that space without abandoning Apple. Right. You know, is it just it, because just quite... a little pricey after the record run it's been on? Yeah. And, you know, fortunately when you buy something at a, at a cheap price and, and it gets to a client's portfolio and it's up to six or seven or 8%, then you, you know, you have an obligation really to, to look at would you put, seven or eight percent of a client's money in a single company to start out and the answer is generally no um so then you have to go through the process of selling and then looking for things that 
you know, represent a better value and a longer runway um, for success. Tim, just about 30 seconds. This AI hype, boy, it's moving a lot of names. How do you think about it? Um, if, you know, if you just use NVIDIA as an example, you know, 40 times sales is a, you know, it's an alarm bell. Um, and I think what, in the end, at the end of the day, it's not the chip. It is the um, software applications. It's the use of those, um, uh, of that technology that's ultimately going to have the value. You know, it's like Maverick. It's not the, it's not the plane, it's the pilot. Right. Um, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be the software, you know, a company like Palantir, for example, is one of our, um, you know, one of the companies yep. that right. we greatly from that. All right, Tim. Thanks very much. Tim Pagliaro, CIO of Cap Wealth, giving us his latest. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's talk retail. What are the consumers buying in terms of clothing? Uh, that's really? a big denim. part. Yeah, exactly. Denim. <laughs> I'm all in on that. I mean, geez. Scott Baxter joins us. Contour Brands. That is a, a publicly traded symbol. KTB is the ticker. Yeah, I know. close to 6% year to date. So, all right. So, Scott Baxter joins us. He's the CEO. Uh, he joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. They're based in where, North Carolina? Greensboro, Greensboro North Carolina. Beautiful place down there, Greensboro. Uh, Scott, talk to us about Contour Brands. You've got... Uh, the ones I really know, everybody knows well, is Lee Jeans. Wrangler. Uh, Wrangler, which is if you're a cowboy. Texas. That's it, right? There you go. If you're a lot a, of Wranglers in Texas, right, let me tell you. I Anecdotally. Mean, Jess is from Texas, <laughs> went to Texas A&M. Cowboys only wear Wrangler, right? I mean, that's the predominant one. That is. It's that's unbelievable. It. True cowboys. <laughs> exactly. So, Scott, talk to us about these brands. You have Lee and Wrangler and, and, and the rest of the, uh, the brands you're managing. So, so Wrangler been around since 1904. Lee's Ooh. been around for over 100 years. Both brands, global brands. Yep. Both brands strong in China, Europe, North America, of course. And then we have a few other brands that are prominent for us, like All Terrain Gear and also Rock and Republic Denim. So we have a nice portfolio, but the predominant piece of our portfolio is both Wrangler and Lee. So you're expanding out to China and other areas yeah. in Asia. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so we've got some really nice licensing deals around Asia, and then we have a, a direct business in China, which is fairly significant. So it's a big part of our portfolio. It's mostly Lee with a little bit of Wrangler, but we have a, been there for over 30 years. So we have a real strong consumer base there that know our product really well. So what's going on over there for your business? You know, it's opened back up. Thank God, right? So we went through a period like everybody did where China was closed and a lot of retail was closed and it's opened back up here recently. So for us, it's been, you How know, do you, so you, 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 do you license your, you said earlier, do you license or do you manufacture and export? We, um, we license our brand to some parts of, of Asia, but we actually own our operations in China. Okay. And we make our product, you know, in China for Are you China. comfortable with that? You got to be less comfortable than you were a few years ago. Right now, everything's okay. Okay. So, so for us right now, is everything's just fine. Yep. And what does this tell us about the consumer more broadly? Not just, obviously, we're not talking about just the U.S. consumer here. Obviously, when you're looking at these other markets, what is it telling us about the global economy? You know, the global economy, I think, is treading water right now. You know, you saw some of the news here out of Europe not recently. China's opened back up, so a little bit stronger. And I think here in the U.S., the uh, consumer is, is, it's tough for the consumer right now, right? All of their borrowing is a little bit more expensive than it has been. So that takes a little bit out of a family's budget. Um, 
so the for your you do most of your manufacturing, right? You don't contract that out. About thirty-five to forty percent, we own our manufacturing in Mexico. Oh, okay. And then the rest is outsourced throughout the globe. And how's that versus your competitors? Uh, we're really the only ones in Denver. And why that is that? Our, you know, we've owned those for so long. We think of it as a competitive advantage. It's speed to market. It's innovation. So we can control our own destiny. It's been a really good deal for us. And think about the time during the pandemic. Owning yep. our own manufacturing during the pandemic was clearly a positive. So having right. that competitive advantage there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we were keeping our factories open. We were rolling product in the whole time. So a really good position. All right. What's the just generic market share, Wrangler, Lee, Levi's, and maybe other, I don't know how yeah, that so, works. So Wrangler's two, Lee is three, and, and Levi's is number one. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So what's the growth for, I mean, these are brands, as you said, around more than 100 years. How do you grow your brands? How do you how does that, how does somebody do that in this day and it's, age? It's new categories, new channels, new geographies, and that's kind of what we've been doing. So, <laughs> excuse me. When we spun off from VF, we were kind of landlocked in a couple of categories and channels because they used us for a cash cow standpoint. And now we've opened that up to across the globe, different channels and categories. So we're selling to high end boutiques. You know, we're selling to the Western Group. We're selling in China. So we're doing things like that, and also creating new opportunities like our outdoor line, all terrain gear. Who do you consider to be some of your rivals? Oh, Levi's would be a, a rival right. of ours, but I consider anybody that sells denim and mm -hmm. or apparel a rival. So, I mean, you know, this, <laughs> I, I was on Wall Street for 30 years wearing a suit. Now this is a, a you know kind of a dress-up day for me having khakis. How's the world changed and how's very the pandemic casual. changed right. for, for you guys? It's helping yeah, you all so, out. So the world has gotten extremely casual, and if you see me today in a, a blazer and right. a, pair, a pair of jeans, it's become the standard you know, for everybody. And it's allowed everywhere you go. You can wear this to weddings. You can wear this to parties. You can wear this to the theater. Didn't used to be able to do it, but now it is totally acceptable. As far as looking more ahead, what is your outlook moving forward for the company this year? I think that we get through this little, you know, shock with the consumer right mm -hmm. now. I think things will get better with time. Interest rates will come down over time. The consumer will be in a better place. And then we'll continue to go ahead and, and do what we've been doing as far as working through a very difficult time, but in an elegant way. From your perspective and how you're viewing things, all of these recession calls, with what you're doing with your business, do you think that's actually likely in the next couple of quarters? It could be. I, I do worry about it. There's no question about it. So, yeah, I give it a 50-50 chance that we could we could go there. But for us, our product is used for work in a very significant way. And right now, as you know, unemployment is very good, especially in North America. So the consumer uses our product for the workplace. So we sit in a pretty good place, and we're very value-oriented. You can buy our product at a very reasonable price, and it's a trusted brand. Um, E-commerce, how does that work for you? How does how does that uh, distribution channel work for you? Big opportunity for us because we didn't capitalize on it or spend any time and money on it when we were part of another company. It's been part of our strategic spinoff move, and we've been investing in it heavily since the day we spun. When when did you spin off? Four years and one month ago. Okay, and why, why was that? It uh, wasn't part of the portfolio that the parent company wanted. They wanted to focus on outdoor and action sports, and we weren't part of that, so we were a logical spin. Okay. Is there, we always like to talk about these, say with McDonald's, it has their fry indicators. One of their last yep. reports, they were talking about how not as many people were adding that onto their uh, meals plans. I was curious when it comes to denim, are there particular indicators like you like to look at that can give you a tell? On we the do. We love to look at um, share data. Mm. So NPD share data for us is extremely important. Uh, most of our retailers, uh, 
are aligned and also are part of that process so we find out exactly what's rang through the register and that is really important to us <clears throat> and our share for both brands has been growing significantly interesting okay so that would be an optimistic sign right very optimistic for us yes right, and it's real data it's hard data 14,400 employees is what we have for you guys talk to us about the labor market for you how tough is it how because we've heard from every CEO in every line of business over the last several years, really tough to get and keep good people. Yeah, it's tough in certain areas. Okay. So it's tough in our retail environment and our stores. It's tough in distribution. It's tough in IT. So there are pockets that are tougher than others. But remember, we're in Greensboro, North Carolina, one of the biggest publicly traded companies. We've been there for 100 years. We have a very loyal base, and we're a very good proposition for people that want to work for a publicly traded big company in Greensboro. Right. Yeah, what are the alternatives? I mean... There aren't, there there aren't, aren't nearly as many as some other large cities. Yep. All right. So, you know, you're sitting in front of a group of investors. What's the number one question you get these days? Uh, mostly about whether we're going to go ahead and pop into a, a recession or how are things going in China. That's an example of two of the most recent ones. How do you keep a pulse on China, really? Oh, we have, uh, we have a sourcing office in Hong Kong, and we have a front-end office marketing sales and design in Shanghai. We have uh, leaders there. We have a general manager. They report right into us. And uh, we, we travel and move back and forth with people. We're there a lot, and they come here a lot. Right. And Chinese like their denim? Oh, love it. Absolutely <laughs> really? love it. And Amazing. It's a, and it's a big marketplace, too. Oh, yeah. yeah. It is a big... I mean, and are there local competitors there? Oh, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, local and also global. You right. Because everybody's in the market, right? Yeah. So not just Texas with the Wranglers, Paul. No, I guess. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I watch... Uh, what is that? Yellowstone? Yes. Oh. All those guys are wearing the Wrangler jeans. Huge jeans. win for us. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Number one rated show on cable TV. I'm Most of the characters are wearing our product, but also the show is centered around rodeos and the cowboy yep. culture. Yep. Our brand is in all of those rodeo venues. You see our signs. We've gotten advertising that way. But the single biggest win for us is if you follow the show, you know Lainey Wilson, sure. the head country artist is on Huge there. Fan. Yeah. Well, we just signed her as our global spokesperson for Boom. women women Boom. wrangler. Huge win for our first <laughs> our first ever global spokesperson. I saw her she opened up for uh, really? Luke Bryan a few years ago. And I said, Love that. That's talented. And, Scott and Baxter, she's a superstar. She's great. Scott Baxter, thank you so much. CEO of Contour Brands. Think Wrangler and Lee Jeans. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's continue our C-suite conversations. Uh, today, we're gonna, now we're going to talk about the distribution of electronics. Uh, huge, huge business, global business. Sean Cairns joins us. He's the CEO of Arrow Electronics, symbol ARW. Uh, the stock is up uh, 32% year-to-date, up about 1.6% today. All-time high for the stock. Sean, thanks so much for joining us. Why is ARW at an all-time high today? Well, thank you, Paul. Thanks for having me. You know, I'd say that the you know, long-term outlook for electronics is very promising. You know, not long ago, the use cases for electronics were pretty narrow. It was things like compute, maybe personal electronics, including your smartphone. But today, you know, we talk about the electrification of everything. And so you're seeing all walks of life and homes, cars, factories, you name it. They're all becoming electrified and they all require more and more semiconductor and electronic technology. So we like that. Sean, talk to us more about what Aero Electronics does in your global reach. So Jess, we, uh, we live in the middle of the electronics and the information technology supply chain, which basically means we help 
the makers of all those technologies get to market. And then we help the commercial customers of those technologies design, build, uh, supply, um, and even manage uh, the products that embed them. You know, we like to say at Arrow that if it takes an electronic charge, we probably had something to do with designing it, provisioning it, getting it to market. So, you know, whenever we talk to folks in a technology supply chain, we have to just ask about the chip business. Where are we? Is it, are we back to quote unquote normal in terms of the supply and demand of, of chips out there? You know, I'd say, uh, Paul, the lead times are improving, uh, but we're certainly not back to pre-pandemic levels. The improvement has been fairly broad based, but there's still a, a handful of categories that are in shorter supply. Um, and therein lies the, you know, the golden screw dynamic that I'm sure you've heard the industry talk about on many occasions. When it comes to the different markets and industries that your company is heavily involved in, which, when, can you talk more specifically if it's, say, automotive, A&D, industrials, things like that, and how they're being impacted by the trajectory of the economy? So, Jess, I'd say the markets are, are broadly mixed, and it does vary by region throughout the world. But, you know, we compete very heavily in the industrial markets, which means, you know, lots of uh, manufacturing. Uh, we have significant exposure to the automotive and transportation industries more broadly, and that obviously puts us right in the middle of the, the transition to electric vehicles. But we also participate in aer aerospace and defense, uh, medical, um, compute, um, and a good handful of others. And I'd say, you know, we're seeing relative strength in industrial and automotive um, and maybe aerospace and defense. They're faring better at the moment than what we see happening in the world of compute, uh, communications infrastructure, you know, mobility, and even things related to the Internet of Things. I think those demand trends are temporary. I think, again, the long-term outlook is going to get better. So... You know, we can't talk to anybody again within the uh, technology stack without talking about AI because it seems like every company in the world feels like they're a play on AI. But uh, how does artificial intelligence impact you, your business, your outlook, your customers? How do you guys think about that? So, like most companies, we're paying very close attention to it. I'd say we're in the early days uh, of the hype cycle, as with many other big tech transitions, you know, throughout history. Uh, but there's no doubt it represents a compelling opportunity for us and for the industry. And so we think about it on two fronts. One is internal because it will certainly help, you know, help us redefine work and workload and streamline a lot of processes that today, you know, require um, lots and lots of effort. Uh, but more importantly, I think, you know, as we speak, there's a whole ecosystem developing around AI and generative AI. And so back to, you know, our role in the middle of the you know, the electronics and the IT supply chain, we're going to help bring that ecosystem to life and we'll help the makers of all those related technologies get to market. And so we think it's just one more of the bigger demand trends that, you know, make the long-term outlook as promising as it is. This bounce back that we've been seeing more broadly in chip stocks this year, looking at the Philadelphia Semiconductor Index, ticker symbol SOX, SOX, that's up, Paul, almost 50%. Yeah. <laughs> it's up 46% year-to-date after that index lost over 35% last year. So, Sean, from your view, and with obviously given a large part of your business is tied to obviously the design and building of these chips, and it comes to the semiconductor sector, what's your tell and your reading on what this means for the global economy? Because if you see chip makers performing well like this, wouldn't that be more of an optimistic sign? You know, I would tend to agree with you. We've been um, 
you know, talking amongst ourselves for some time now that we're, you know, there's an argument to be made for a softer landing. Um, as you might know, there's a cyclical nature to this industry. And so when demand is strong, you know, supply ramps up to serve it. And that all works great until demand softens. Um, and that leads to, you know, a buildup of, of inventory throughout the industry that takes a little bit of time to sell through. I'd say the industry is right in the middle of that now. Um, however, you know, backlogs are still fairly significant due to all the shortages over the past couple of years. And I'd say demand has softened, but it's not, you know, falling sharply. You know, I think we're in the midst of a market that's moving sideways and hence we sort of feel like, you know, a softer landing is in store. And I think, you know, the market is probably reflecting that. So, uh, Sean, I see about a third of your revenue comes from uh, Asia Pacific. I don't know. What's your exposure to China? What's your either as a customer or supplier? And how are you guys dealing with that? Well, we serve the uh, the Asia Pacific market, of which you know China is the biggest piece. Uh, like in the West, we tend to focus on the transportation and industrial uh, markets, and so you know demand in China is softer at the moment. But you know we do anticipate that that will improve at some point in the near future. Um, you know we we like that market. We like our position in that market, and we think that there's still um, a lot of good opportunity for us in store. Having said that, we're a global company, and we have lots of relative strength uh, throughout the West. So regardless of how the you know the semi semiconductor industry shakes out, I think we're well positioned, uh, regardless of how that, how that looks. We only have about 20 seconds left. Other areas in the global economy that you want to push into? Well, we certainly like um, all the trends in transportation and industrial and medical, as I mentioned. Uh, we certainly see... Um, you know, great opportunities in our IT business for the the notion of uh, information technology yep. as a service. And we're certainly going to play an important role in helping, you know, customers benefit from it. All right. Hey, Sean, thanks so much for taking the time to, to check in with us. Sean Cairns, he's the CEO of Arrow Electronics. The New York Stock Exchange uh, ticker is ARW to put into your Bloomberg terminal. And what you'll find when you put up the prices, the stock's at an all-time high. So, participating in that tech move. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.